Welcome, listeners, to a very special episode of the Religious Studies Project. This is uh, first of our edited episodes for a while, and it's the finale of our uh, recent series co-produced by Socrel to celebrate their 40th anniversary. And it's entitled New Horizons in the Sociology of Religion, colon, Beyond Secularization. And we can assume there's a question mark there. Absolutely. Um, I'm Christopher Cotter. He's David Robertson. Before we pass over to the first of our speakers, we'll just flag up. This is, yes, generously supported by Socrel, but also by the BASR, NAASR, and IAHR. Um, but to kick us off, um, so we, we really wanted to um, set some scholars off, uh, sort of give them a question and say, you, you go for it. So um, within the sociology of religion, it's a caricature that there's quite a ubiquity of the secularization thesis, which the critical study of religion has um, most definitely moved on from in many ways, as we've discussed on the podcast before. If you want to know more about that, um, why not listen to our introductory podcast with Linda Woodhead on the secularization thesis? And we, we asked um, scholars to reflect on what sociology of religion is for them beyond secularization. So to problematize it, critique it, or challenge its ubiquity and move beyond it. Um, and we've assembled a, a crack team of scholars and we've got Grace Davy, Paul Tremlett, Joe Webster, Carol Cusack, Jonathan Jong, Linda Woodhead, and Kim Knott. Um, so I think we should just pass right over, fittingly, since we began the series with Grace Davy. We should pass over to her and ask her what sociology of religion is beyond secularization. I think what I would say in, in response to that question is... Um, a huge amount depends on how you think about secularization. And this goes back to um, the discussion or debate, if you like, between Brian Wilson and David Martin. Um, it echoes a bit in the discussion that I've had with Steve Bruce in the later generation. Do you think of it as, as it were, um, a crucial element of modernization, um, something that is, as it were, a pathway that is going to happen, um, but don't overemphasize even that, that Brian Wilson or, or, or Steve Bruce, who've had, as it were, like a harder version of secularization than I have, even uh, they would certainly say that it's nuanced and it varies in different places and, uh, 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 and you know, you can't necessarily predict exactly what's going to happen. But, but there is a very strong element in their thinking that, that um, as societies modernize, they will necessarily secularize. Now, don't oversimplify that, but hold that as the core. Well, if you go to David Martin's work uh, and um, you see right from the beginning that the whole thing is much more subtle and much more contextual. Uh, 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 and therefore, you, as you unfold modernity in different parts of the world, you may or may not find secularization. Um, you've already talked about the US case or, or that has been much discussed in sociology, why why the US looks so different. Um well, I would say there's three reasons. Um, it, it, its religion is structurally different. It doesn't have parishes and territory. It has congregations. Um, it doesn't have a whole historical settlement of pre-modern society embedded in rural areas, which was dislocated by the Industrial Revolution, because it was never there. I mean, when people came to, Europeans came 
to the US. Of course, there was native religion there, but there wasn't established um, centuries of European religion that they'd left behind. It went straight to the cities. It embedded immediately in the urban um, as those cities became big in people places like Pittsburgh or, or, or um, Chicago, they, religion grew with the city. And, of course, the Enlightenment is very differently understood in the US. Um, instead of the Enlightenment being a freedom from religion, freedom from belief, it's a freedom to believe in the US. Mm-hmm. Um, the, 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 the Protestant churches in the US carry the Enlightenment whereas the Catholic Church in, in Europe, the dominant church in much of Europe, um, restricted it, constrained it. And so you've got a whole set of different factors which, which mean that American development, evolution of religion is quite, quite different from Europe. And then you think of that um, in Latin America, or you go to sub-Saharan Africa, or you go to the Muslim world, um, which is hugely diverse, and, and, and the Pacific Rim or, or China or wherever, and you're going to encounter an entirely different story. Uh, and, and secularization, as we understand it in Europe, um, is simply not applicable there. And, and you need this imaginative quality of seeing how modern societies develop in different ways um, with a different relationship to religion. Uh, uh, and um, some of them, as it were, religion grows with modernity. Um, I mean, think of how... Um, Sub-Saharan African societies Christianized in the colonial period, um, uh, uh, and to be to be to become a Christian in in, in Africa, John Peel's wonderful work on the Yoruba in Nigeria, John Peel shows us that to become a Christian meant to become modern. That was a step towards modernity. So we mustn't impose our European thinking and categories um, indiscriminately. That's a very dangerous thing. So I think. The debate about secularization will continue, but it's got to be an informed, intelligent, contextualized, um, reflective debate to, to, to understand these very complex relationships um, in different parts of the world. Hugely interesting, hugely exciting. Some really interesting points there about the uh, development of Christianity in the US, particularly in, you know, its relationship to urbanization, um, a secularism in the political sense, um, and how differently that was there. And what, what underlines this is a relationship between religion and power, you know, as usual. Um, and that we maybe shouldn't assume our modernity to be the same modernity as everywhere else. Absolutely. So that was Grace Davy from the University of Exeter. And building on that, um, we may also have a lot of assumptions about our modernity that um, if we take a different methodological gaze, we might um, have some quite different conclusions. So we thought it would be great to get an anthropologist um, involved in this discussion um, and building straight off what Grace is saying there. We've got Joe Webster of Queen's University um, taking a sort of anthropological look at secularization in Scotland. As an anthropologist of religion, also trained in sociology, I find the question I've been asked to address intriguing, although somewhat puzzling. Beyond secularization, what is the sociology of religion? Although I think I have a fairly good grasp of what sociologists mean by secularization, I have never really been sure that the social processes it claims to describe actually exist, at least not globally, nor as a coherent and interlocking whole. 
This is because, unlike some social sciences, the anthropological gaze has always, from the very beginning of the discipline, extended far beyond Northern Europe and North America. So whether or not fewer people are going to church in Heidelberg or Aberdeen or Wichita seems less of a deal-breaker than it might otherwise be. There is, very literally, a whole world of religion out there to be studied. Thus, although it seems like an obvious point, it seems important to remember at the outset that there is lots of religion going on outside the North Atlantic. The spread of Pentecostalism across South America, Africa, and Melanesia stand as significant examples of this, as does the global rise of new expressions of Islam post-9-11. The basic point is that if secularization does exist, it exists largely in Northwest Europe and North America, and thus may be the exception that proves the rule that religion still matters, and matters greatly. The irony here is that my own ethnographic work has focused precisely on one of these regions, Northwestern Europe, by attending to radical expressions of Protestantism in Scotland, as found among the Exclusive Brethren, and more recently, among the Orange Order. What the Brethren of Gamery in northeast Scotland tell us, I think, is that modernity and enchantment need not be mutually exclusive. The Brethren lead very modern lives, most obviously while they trawl for prawns in the North Sea. Yet current levels of church attendance in Gamery, to take only one measure of secularization, are closer to the national average of 1851 than to 2011. One way of interpreting this is to see Gamery as some kind of ethnographic oddity, partially insulated from secularization by a communal commitment to the urgency of dispensationalist theology, which views the present as the last of the last days. But how, then, are we to account for the truly massive success among American readers of the Left Behind novels? Another twist in the tale comes when one realizes that the Brethren of Gamery are very well aware that the fortunes of Christianity are declining in their village and across Scotland. Yet these elderly Christians do not regard the apostasy of younger generations as evidence of secularization, but rather as a self-evident fulfillment of biblical prophecy, that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers. From this perspective, any definition of secularization one may care to offer simply becomes a modern, but still enchanted, sign of the end times between God and the devil. Indeed, for the brethren, Steve Bruce describes such a world with immense accuracy in his definition of secularization as including, among other things, the decay of religious institutions, the displacement in matters of behaviour, of religious rules and principles, and the decline in the proportion of their time, energy and resources that people devote to supernatural concerns. For the Brethren, Bruce is simply describing the soon arrival of the eschaton. But what if the Brethren have no monopoly over such apocalyptic warnings? What if the ostensibly secular North Atlantic context is itself inclusive of this kind of millenarian thinking? 
For example, I've written elsewhere about how much of the rhetoric surrounding climate change is deeply indebted to the apocalyptic logic of dispensationalism. Other examples abound. Stephen Hawking has publicly stated his belief in a coming AI apocalypse. Francis Fukuyama has argued the same for a post-human future of genetic engineering. Most recently, England's chief medical officer has warned of an antibiotic apocalypse. Are these commentators dispensationalists in denial? Probably not, but the point remains that their logics, their rhetoric, one could even say their beliefs, seem profoundly unsecular. What of the Orange Order? I'm more hesitant to comment on this case because the book is still a work in progress. Yet the fact that one of Scotland's largest voluntary associational organisations is dedicated to preserving Scotland as not only a unionist, but also a Protestant nation, seems worth pondering. What if, in the context of the Scottish Orange Order, religion is reimagined as a nationalist or even as a racial category? What might this do to the secularization thesis? Might we have a fraternal ethno-religious belonging despite the absence of a strong theological believing? From this perspective, religion among the Orange Order comes to be more than census data and demographic trends. It comes, rather, to be an inalienable essence or an inherited substance, like blood and bone. Here, ethno-religion is as persistent and arguably resurgent as the not particularly secular hot nationalism of Nigel Farage and Donald Trump. It seems, then, that both the Brethren and the Orange Order teach us that while religion isn't always what we think it might be, it still matters, and matters greatly, even in a place as supposedly secular as Scotland. Wonderful to hear from Joe there, and a number of very excellent points, particularly for me about how um, secularization is in the eye of the beholder, um, depending upon your methodological approach, depending upon the context, or indeed depending upon your epistemological framework, um, will depend how you translate and frame um, exactly that. Um, what struck me uh, particularly was this uh, point about secularization very much depends on what you're talking about when you describe religion. And I've made the same point myself that often we see other parts of the world as being more religious because we count more things there as being religious um, than we do in our own world, which was a point that Joe very eloquently made there. Um, and this, I think, connects very strongly to uh, Carol Cusack of the University of Sydney's comments, um, again, on what we count as real religion. So I'll pass straight over to Carol. Thanks for this opportunity to say something about the future of the sociology of religion. I actually think it's very risky to say anything about the future because you could so easily be proven wrong. But it occurs to me that we have the possibility of doing significant further research in an area that we might call hypothetical or provisional religion. Um, I recently encountered this idea, hypothetical religion, when I was reading a chapter by Alexander van der Haven in 
Jeff Kripal's book, Religion, Super Religion, and the framing of the topic of religion was working between two poles, the poles of certainty and uncertainty. Recent discussion on the Religious Studies Project has pointed out that perhaps the whole area of the study of religion has become overwhelmed by the study of, for example, radical Islam, something that, in fact, is a very small trend in the entirety of world religion, by which I don't mean world with a capital W, I mean religion across the world, because perhaps people in the West feel at risk from radical Islam and because of excessive mediatization, which naturally makes us feel that these things are more dangerous perhaps than they are. It reminds me, as a young Australian student, of my fears about flying to Europe and indeed to America. Nowadays I fly as easily as I catch a bus, partly because I never really understood that the exceptional nature of the experience of flying didn't increase the risk of dying. In fact, it radically reduced it. I'm far more likely to be knocked over and killed as a pedestrian in Sydney than I ever am in a flight. So it would seem to me that one thing to move away from in the sociology of religion is an overemphasis on radicalization and also on other forms of religion that are associated with passionate certainty, like fundamentalisms, partly because these are extreme cases. They're boxed off from the sort of experience that a very sizable majority of people nowadays have, which is the experience of life in global modernity, a life that is characterised by provisionality, pragmatism, by experiment and by not precisely a lack of commitment, but shifting and interwoven commitments that at certain points are more intense than others. It may be, of course, that the only reason I find these ideas attractive is because in the last, oh, more than five but less than ten years, I've been working a lot in the area of religions that are inspired by or incorporate parts of popular cultural texts, especially science fiction and other forms of fictional um, material, including film and television. And van der Haven, in his very interesting chapter, Hypothetical Religion, uh, concludes by saying, if the first of these modern phenomena, fundamentalism, is the shape of religion to come, then hypothetical religion will become irrelevant. If, however, fiction-based religiosity gains a wider and a more committed audience, hypothetical religion can become a major form of religious epistemology in the future, be it near or far. I think there's a problem with that statement too, partly because he talks about hypothetical religion gaining a more committed audience, which suggests that 
um, religious or spiritual or indeed uh, philosophical or cultural trends only have significance if there is significant commitment attached to them. It may be that that is true. After all, governments, for example, generally are deemed to be committed when real money is put towards particular social programs or international aid, for example. But I like to think that people researching religion, and sociologists in particular, because despite various um, clarion calls to, for example, pay attention to the agency of objects that we have been hearing in the last decade or so, I tend to remain convinced that religion is particular to human beings and that human beings are the only place where it will be found. Sociologists, therefore, are crucial. They study human beings. They study human ideas, human social formations. And I think their particular opportunity now is to be open to a study of religiosity, of spirituality, a word I know that has many problems, but this is a soundbite, so you must forgive me, to study these phenomena from a point of view of open-endedness, open source, and unfinalizability, perhaps. It seems to me that we live in the modern world in an era of provisionality, in an era of hypotheses. Perhaps this is the shape of religion in the future. And Carol, quite usefully reminding us there that one thing that sociology does very well is remind us that religion, whatever it might be or whatever we label in that way, is certainly a human phenomena or something that we <laughs> describe things that humans do. Mm -hmm. um, and talking of which, some... Um, of the more cutting-edge uh, methodologies in RS um, are coming from this uh, n really nice intersection of sort of anthropological methods and sociological methods, um, and particular sort of ideas of embodiment and materiality. Um, and uh, Paul-Francois Tremlett um, is going to tell us a little bit about those. So if we think about um, a sociology of secularization, it's... Um been you know crit uh, criticized for for on a, a number of levels uh one of those is its focus on belief and the focus on belief has been a sort of a sort of perennial issue in the study of religion more broadly in anthropology you you've got someone like uh, eb tyler the founder of anthropology of religion he's defining religion in terms of belief and then we find that belief oriented focus in in, in more contemporary uh, studies, uh, evolutionary psychology, cognitive anthropology. Um, uh, it's in sociology, as I said, in the secularization thesis. And of course, it, 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 it all perhaps can be traced back to this sort of Cartesian mind-body uh, binary. So um, a number of, uh, there have been a number of different ways of responding uh, to this privileging of belief. And you know, a key a key element of that has been a focus on the body, on embodiment, um, on performance, ritual, riffing off scholars such as Judith Butler uh, and others, and 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 really, it's been about putting the body 
uh, at the centre of the analysis as a way of, of trying to get past this assumption that if we want to study religion, then we must be studying belief because religion is about believing particular kind of propositional statements about this or that, why the world is like this, how the world got to be like this in a particular God or, or, or gods. So embodiment has really been about trying to put ritual and practice on what people do at the centre uh, of of what sociology of religion is all about. Thank you very much, Paul Tremlett of the Open University. So Paul was talking there about how um, many approaches, both within the sociology of religion and beyond, tend to privilege belief and then move away from that to realizing the embodiment. Um, another discipline that might be naively accused of privileging belief um, would be the psychology of religion. Um, and we've got Jonathan Zhang of Coventry University to bring a psychological perspective to the secularization debate and to what sociology of religion can bring to the psychology of religion and vice versa. As trendy as it is to go beyond things these days, I don't really think that it's a problem if secularization is what occupies sociologists of religion. It's a big topic. Maybe not the caricature yes or no question about whether religion, whatever that is, is in decline in the post-industrial West, but still pressing are questions about the varied senses in which religion is becoming more or less culturally significant. The causes of religiosity and irreligiosity and anti-religiosity are still mysteries to be probed and probed with the conceptual and methodological tools of the social and psychological sciences. We mustn't be tempted to think that secularization, or for that matter, religion, is too complex a phenomenon to study. That what I just call mysteries are totally impenetrable. I don't believe that for a second. We do a lot of hand-wringing about our failure to define terms like religion or secularism, but it's a misplaced kind of self-hatred. There's nothing wrong with looking at specific bits of complex phenomena one at a time, which is to say that there's nothing wrong with some definitional diversity as long as we're clear what we're talking about at any given time. Religious affiliation, public participation, private practice, belief, are all slightly different, albeit related things, each doubtless further decomposable into yet more specific human activities. They can be measured separately, even if we are interested in multiple aspects at the same time, or the interactions between aspects. The insights from the 1990s about believing without belonging and sometimes vice versa recognize this, and we should not forget those lessons. We can look at how and why different aspects of religion rise and fall, including how different beliefs are more or less impervious to secularizing forces. I focus on beliefs deliberately, of course. It's what I'm mainly interested in. This is where I think psychologists and sociologists can work fruitfully together. Beliefs are things in our heads that are undoubtedly affected by external forces. 
including the social, cultural, political, historical, and even physical environments in which we live. Psychologists like me, we are good at investigating proximate causes, how particular circumstances shift our beliefs one way or the other. What we're less good at is taking a step back and looking at broader contexts. We aren't as savvy at theorizing about and testing the kinds of contextual effects I just mentioned. Societal and cultural norms, political situations, histories, local physical traits. Perhaps selfishly then, I think, the psychology of religion could stand to benefit from the conceptual and methodological tools of the sociology of religion. And conversely, I think a psychologically richer approach to studying religion as a human social phenomenon is necessary going beyond, speaking of going beyond things, religious affiliation or frequency of church attendance or simple attitude surveys. It might, for example, help us explore some fascinating questions like what to make of the Icelandic belief in elves or the fact that Brazilian spiritism occurs disproportionately among the educated middle class, while English versions are more common among the working class. So, I guess... I think that the future of the sociology of religion should look more psychological and that the psychology of religion should be more sociological. Thanks very much to Jonathan Jong. And speaking about future directions for the sociology of religion, um, who better to speak to than the professor of the sociology of religion at Lancaster University, Linda Woodhead. I think this is a really interesting time for sociology of religion, maybe the most interesting time since its origins, really, because we're going through such enormous changes, um, not just in the West, but in the world more generally. And I think it means two things in particular for sociology of religion. Um, the first one is we're losing our Western focus, which is um, overdue. So as we get more scholars from other parts of the world looking in on religion from very different um, continents and contexts and perspectives, that's starting to really change the whole way we look at things. And I'm sure that's going to change um, uh, not just our concept of religion, but it'll generate new theories as well as new empirical understanding. Um, it's already obviously started to shift um, and critique how we understand religion. That critique of a, of, you know, a kind of Protestant, um, implicitly Protestant paradigm has already shifted, um, and has been subject to critique for a long time now. That's old news, really. Um, but, uh, more constructive empirical work, which looks at, well, okay, so, um, what, what does the subject encompass in a, in a country like China, where most people say they don't have religion? Um, how do we redefine religion and look at it again? So uh, in relation to China, I'm very interested in scholars who are thinking about, well, it's not attendance, uh, it's not beliefs. That's why people say they have no religion. So what is it? And um, Anna Sun, for example, is thinking it's much more to do with ritual and prayer or meditation. So you know, reconfiguring what religion is and looking afresh, and that will refresh um, our Western perspectives as well, I'm sure. So the first thing, sociology of religion is changing as its centre shifts around the world and as we look at it from other continents. My second um, main observation about where sociology of religion is going is um, it's partly to do with the rise of no religion, which we're seeing very clearly in some countries now, like like the UK, um, where I'm speaking from. Um, uh, 
And that raises the whole question of what does the study of religion encompass? Can it encompass no religion? Uh, is that part of its of its remit? And I think that's going to force us to think much more generally about uh, whether we give up looking at what the majority of people in no religion countries, you know, how they make life sacred and what their rituals and practices are. Do scholars of religion give up on that and say, oh, that's just culture and that's not for religious studies? Or, as I think we should, say, actually, we've got some incredibly good tools for looking uh, at what uh, non-religious people do because we're used to looking for where people find meaning and the sacred. And I think that's, again, going to force sociology religion to be much broader and to really have to think hard about how it relates to the sociology of culture. And related to that, I think we have we're all insiders now. We can't pretend to be objective um, studiers looking at uh, you know, objects outside us. Um, we've we've gone through that revolution. Um, but we will have to be playing a much more central role in future forming research, not just describing what is in our culture now, uh, but also looking at, well, how what's a better future? What's a better cultural future? Uh, very urgent for us now. We've just um, as I speak, we've just had first Brexit and then the Trump election victory in America. The world looks rather different. Um, we've got quite complacent about culture, I think, you know, how we educate people, what our values are. Uh, religion used to do that work. When it declines, what takes its place? What kind of culture do we want? Do we want a complete cultural free-for-all? Or do we think there are certain uh, values and religious traditions and beliefs that we want to keep on handing down uh, and that have something more important about them? And I don't think that sociology religion can duck those issues any longer. It has ducked those issues, really, uh, throughout its history. It's been more interested in describing uh, the present. But now I think we can't duck the challenge of talking about the kinds of better future worlds we want to see. Of course, if you've been listening to the series as a whole, particularly my uh, introductory interview with Grace Davy and my interview with Titus Yelm and, and Paul-Francois Tremlett that we broadcast last week, you'll be well aware of this uh, very different stance within the sociology of religion as opposed to uh, religious studies about the role of the scholar in creating uh, social policy. Of course, when we talk about creating better worlds, we have to ask whose better societies are we creating according to whose norms are they better, which, you know, kind of brings us full circle. Exactly. And we'll soon find out once everyone in the academy has been re replaced with a neoliberal um, uh, company cheerleaders. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Professional teaching machines. Um so to round off, we're going to have another comment uh, from Lancaster University from my uh, PhD supervisor, Kim Knott. And she picked up nicely from what Linda was saying there about the notions of the sacred um, as a thing that sociology of religion can be studying. And we're meaning this very much in a uh, Durkheimian sense rather than a Eliadian sense. And um, so that links right back to the very discipline of sociology itself when we're bringing in Durkheim. So take it away, Kim. In 1974, the British sociologist of religion, Robert Towler, wrote, It is inevitable that the word secularisation will continue to be used to connote the diminishing frequency with which the supernatural will be invoked. But this need be no bad thing, so long as it does not distract attention from the study of the sacred. 
My position on beyond secularization, what does the sociology of religion mean for me, is encapsulated in this quotation from Towler's book, Homo Religiosus, Sociological Problems in the Study of Religion. We can't get away from secularization, but nonetheless, there's still work to be done and continuities across time that need to be addressed. I'll mention just three, the sacred, order and meaning. First, though, how do I understand beyond secularization? In many ways, secularization embodies the entirety of sociology of religion in the West. Theorizing about religion since the time of Marx and Durkheim has taken place in a period of significant religious and social change, and theorists like them have grappled with that process and its consequences. Secularization as a change process is ongoing. In this sense, there is no going beyond it, only continued engagement with it, unless and until it transforms or ceases. But secularization as a debate and body of theory about the declining social and cultural significance of religion is another matter. We can withdraw from that debate or seek to go beyond the thesis. But in doing so, we cannot actually escape the secularizing conditions of late modernity, however we choose to interpret them. We experience them and must respond to them. So, beyond the debate about secularization, what issues remain on the table for the sociology of religion? If we look back to the early 1970s, to the period when Brian Wilson, David Martin and Peter Berger were writing on secularization, Robert Towler was asking students to focus on other questions in the sociology of religion. If it is properly and seriously undertaken, he wrote, the sociology of religion exposes a scholar to the beliefs which are regarded as precious and inviolate by a people other than his own and to aspects of their lives which are of crucial importance to them. It involves exploring the ideas and practical attitudes by which people make sense of their society and of the world as they experience it. End quote. Towler focused on meaning and order and the importance of those matters deemed precious and inviolate or sacred. Perhaps his major contribution at the time was his introduction with Audrey Chamberlain of the concept of common religion. Common religion denoted non-organised, unofficial, popular religiosity, that sphere which was not under the domination of a prevailing religious organisation. Even if we dispute the term, we cannot fail to see its continuing relevance. Following him then, I want to draw attention to three areas of continuity in the sociology of religion, sacred, order and meaning. They form an agenda which has shaped some of my own interests since I studied and worked with Bob Towler in the late 1970s and early 1980s. I've turned them into questions. So question one on the sacred. What matters are deemed precious and inviolate today? How and why do they differ to those held to be sacred 40, 70 or 100 years ago? In my own work, I've responded to this by researching the secular sacred 
and the way in which matters of sacred concern come to the fore in public controversies. Question two on order. How do individuals and groups seek to anchor and order their lives in the face of uncertainty and rapid change? A broad question requiring an interdisciplinary response, it nevertheless begs attention from sociologists of religion. In my current work, I'm considering how and why individuals are attracted to high-demand religious groups, what they expect as converts and ex-members, and how those in authority, whether parents, leaders or peers, transmit traditions of belief and practice, all of which issues focus on order. And question three on meaning. How do women and men explain what happens to them, past, present and future, as well as to their immediate circle, wider society and the planet? And what resources do they draw on to make sense of this? How women explored and negotiated destiny issues in interviews and narratives was something I first worked on in the 1990s and hope to return to in the years to come. Here are three questions then on the sacred, order and meaning that remain relevant beyond the secularisation debate. The answers, however, cannot but be shaped by the very processes of social and religious change that we commonly refer to as secularisation. Thanks very much for that, Kim. And that brings us to the end of our contributions. It was wonderful to have such a range of contributions. We were really interested in bringing you this series as a whole and this episode um, because we we feel certainly in our context in the UK and I'm sure we can speak beyond this that the sociology of religion and religious studies sometimes don't really speak to each other and there can be sort of quite parallel um research um going on and you know each has a bit of a caricature of the other sociology of religion might look at religious studies and CSB far too obsessed with category formation and definitions of words being quite dominated by a phenomenological streak that they don't find palatable. And we, in religious studies, may look at sociology of religion and see quite a prevalence of maybe naive use of folk categories, um, reliance on quantitative data surveys and so on, um, the reification of folk categories um, to serve particular agendas potentially. So we hope that through this lengthy engagement and conversation between the, the sort of two um, approaches to the category of religion that we've, we've helped um, create some dialogue and dispel uh, maybe some of these caricatures that we might have and show exactly what can happen when a fruitful collaboration happens. And that fruitful collaboration can continue if you've got something to say that we've missed out or that you disagree with or you want to build on any of these points, please do leave your comment in beneath the, the episode or indeed on Facebook or any of the many channels that we have, Twitter, um, iTunes, and um, even YouTube. 
Yeah. Although the comments on YouTube, you know, they don't tend to be quite so constructive. Yeah, you could even email editors at religiousstudiesproject.com and we would read out your response on a future podcast. So you can add that to your uh, Christmas wish list. Excellent idea. And talking about Christmas wish list, if you're using Amazon um, over the next week for those last minute um, presents, do consider using our affiliate links.co.uk.com and .ca as it really does make a major difference to the funding of this project at no additional expense to yourself. And if you're living in a context where you're not dominated by uh, the hegemony of Christianity and Christmas, well, lucky you, <laughs> but also you won't have much use for our .com, .co.uk or .ca links. Alas, you might have a use for our Christmas special next week. Do come back if you are filled with heavy, um, big ideas from this week's podcast. They'll all go out the window next week where it's just straight silliness. So do come back. It's a very good episode indeed. We should just take this moment because uh, this is the last time we'll be recording um, before 2017. Just to say thank you for making 2016 uh, genuinely our best year um, that's for the listeners the contributors our interviewers and especially our editorial team who've done a bang up job this year yeah and we are well ahead um with our schedule for 2017 so we're looking forward to um even better next year and as ever the special end of 2016 thanks, thanks for, for listening, listening.